Let's now turn to Second Chronicles chapter 15. Now the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Obed. And he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time Israel has been without the true God, without a teaching priest and without law. But when in their trouble they turned to the Lord God of Israel and sought him, he was found by them. And in those times there was no peace to the one who went out nor to the one who came in, but great turmoil was in all, was on all the inhabitants of the lands. So nation was destroyed by nation and city by city, for God troubled them with every adversity. But you be strong and do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. And when Asa heard these words and the prophecy of Obed, the prophet, he took courage and removed the abominable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities which he had taken in the mountains of Ephraim. And he restored the altar of the Lord that was before the vestibule of the Lord. And he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those who dwelt with them from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon. For they came over to him in great numbers from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. So they gathered together at Jerusalem in the third month, in the fifteenth year of the reign of Asa. And they offered to the Lord at that time seven hundred bulls and seven thousand sheep from the spoil they had brought. Then they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul. And whoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel was to be put to death, whether small or great, whether man or woman. Then they took an oath before the Lord with a loud voice, with shouting and trumpets and ram's horns. And all Judah rejoiced at the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart and sought him with all their soul. And he was found by them, and the Lord gave them rest all around. Also he removed Maacah, the mother of Asa the king, from being queen mother, because she had made an obscene image of Asherah. And Asa cut down her obscene image, then crushed and burned it by the brook Kidron. But the high places were not removed from Israel. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was loyal all his days. He also brought into the house of God the things that his father had dedicated and that he himself had dedicated, silver and gold and utensils. And there was no war until the 35th year of the reign of Asa. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what motivates you uh, to new effort or new energy or joy in the Christian life? Uh, Could it be a fresh experience of God's grace to you? Uh, Perhaps uh, an answer to prayer, a remarkable providence that you have experienced that confirms your belief that that God is near to you, that he is active and working in your life? Uh, could it be uh, recovery of health, perhaps? Or uh, could it be a sermon that profoundly affected you? Or a book that you read? Or help from a friend that had a great impact on you uh, for good? Or maybe it's a result of emerging from some 
crisis in your family or or coming out of a a time of depression and discouragement and such things may happen suddenly uh such things also may begin rather quietly uh with a kind of gradual re- resurgence of spiritual energy and strength which may then in turn be followed by God's blessing leading to yet deeper gratitude Such things are not uncommon in the varied experience of God's people. There are certainly ups and downs, and sometimes we can trace uh, those ups and downs very clearly and sometimes identify the very things that have been of great help to us in our lives as individuals or families, as a congregation. King Asa, along with Judah, experienced that marvelous deliverance that we considered last time when uh, Judah was delivered by the Lord from a million-man army from Ethiopia with their powerful chariots. And yet God subdued these enemies before them and rescued them from them. And that indeed was a demonstration of God's mercy and grace uh, to his people. Not because of their uh, worthiness. Israel had been in a state of spiritual decline. But God in his grace raised up Asa. God in his grace uh, brought about a kind of reform that already had begun in the previous chapter. And in his grace, he showed his presence and power in delivering Israel from a great crisis. And whenever God's people experience a a fresh um, renewal of God's presence and grace in their lives, that is also a fresh calling and a a fresh obligation, if you will, to use the language of Psalm 103, to forget not all his benefits. Forgives all your iniquities, who heals your diseases, but rather we are to yield ourselves to him uh, more and more. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Right? That's the pattern. In fact, it's been observed that that's really the pattern of our catechism uh, outline the knowledge of sin from which we need deliverance. We call upon God and he delivers us. And then in response of gratitude, we seek to honor him by our prayers, by our obedience. And this dynamic is seen in the chapter before us. It's about grace that's followed by more grace. It's about deliverance that then leads to yet greater devotion. God's grace inspires renewed consecration. That's what we want to see from this chapter. Renewed consecration on the part of Asa and Judah, and hopefully renewed consecration to us this morning as we consider God's grace to us in Christ. May it so inspire us. And we begin by considering those encouraging words from the Lord that we read about in verse 1 and following. The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Obed, a prophet. This is the only time we read of this prophet. But he met Asa on his way back from their victory against the Ethiopians and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. An encouraging word with precious promises. Promises of God's presence. What is more precious, what is more important than that the Lord indeed should be with us? You know, we can pray that uh, uh, 
prayer rather thoughtlessly as a matter of routine, Lord, be with us. But it really is a powerful petition prayed in faith for what is most important, that God indeed would manifest his grace and presence with us, that he would be our help, that he would be our strength, that he would be our guide. And such a promise was given to Asa and to Judah and to Benjamin. The Lord is with you. He will be found by you. The assurance of answered prayer. And how precious is that? How, how, how we treasure the assurance of our Lord Jesus Christ. We said, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, you shall find. Knock, it shall be opened to you. Even earthly fathers who are evil give good gifts to their children. How much more will your heavenly father give to you those things that you ask? The prophet said, God has never said, seek me in vain. There is not one hint in all of scripture that suggests that people might earnestly seek the Lord and he's going to just ignore them. It's pointless. It's purposeless to pray to the Lord. God never says, you know, I might answer your cries. No, rather, we hear such assurances in Psalm uh, 145, that psalm that we read. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He also will hear their cry and save them. The assurance of God's presence, the assurance of answered prayer. And then these stirring conditions that the prophet speaks. Uh, these promises, these rich promises, if we listen to them as given, they're not simply unqualified assurances. You know, that that's what a lot of religious people want. They want the assurance that God loves them unconditionally, no matter what, no matter how they live, no matter what they do. You know, there's a lot of people that, that turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. That's the Bible's description of presuming upon the grace of God while people live as they please, without a concern to obey his commandments. By this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. I've talked to a lot of people over the years, I'm sure you have as well, that are actually quite confident in God's love for them while they're clearly and obviously living in sin, living in fornication or adultery, living lives of, of ungodliness in one way or another. And they don't seem to be concerned about it. That means that they're operating with a totally wrong view of God and what it means to know his love and what it means to be forgiven by him. There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. The knowledge of God's grace and forgiveness always leads us to want to serve him and to please him. Imagine the prophet coming to Asa and saying, Congratulations, Asa. God is with you. God is always there for you. He's always on your side. He'll never let you down. Just go back home and enjoy your life of, of luxury and ease as king. Wrong. That's not what the prophet says. That doesn't take away from the riches of these promises and assurance. In fact, they're combined with conditions that are moving, that are exhilarating, that are motivating to faith. You know, a God that promises assurance without any, any, uh, Conditions, if you will. Well, that's not the God of Scripture. Such a God doesn't really engage with us. Uh, that's not the God of the covenant. 
Remember, God, the covenant-making, the covenant-keeping God came to Abraham and said, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be perfect. Walk with sincere devotion to me, your God. I am your God. You are my people. That's a relationship of mutual uh, loyalty and love. In every covenant, there are two parts. Every time there's a baptism, we read of those wonderful triune promises of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then we're reminded that every covenant contains two parts. And that by these assurances, we are obligated, we are obliged to new obedience, namely that we cling to God, that we trust in Him, that we love Him with all our heart, soul. That's a, that's a response to the knowledge of God's saving grace. To hearts of faith. These conditions are not depressing. They're not discouraging. They're, they're motivating. They are arousing. That's what they're intended to be. And this really is the lesson of sacred history, isn't it? Actually, uh, our text contains a kind of history lesson. The prophet continues in verses three through six and gives that, uh, that history lesson. I won't, I won't read it again, but it's easy to discern the, the, the great themes of this history lesson. It goes like this. People become distant from God. They're not faithful in his covenant. They turn to idolatry. And as a result of it, they they suffer the consequences of that. No peace is the way it's stated in verse 5. And then they suffer defeat. They suffer defeat from their enemies. In verse 6, it says, God troubled them with every adversity. God in his loving kindness and faithfulness disciplines them for their unfaithfulness. Now, we might wonder just exactly what is the um, prophet here describing. If it's a history lesson, what history is recalled here? It's not clear, but it sure sounds like the pattern of God's dealing with Israel during the period of the judges. In fact, it was repeated again and again and again. They fell into one idolatry of one form or another, and then God disciplined with the uh, incursion of a foreign nation. They called upon him in their need. He raised up a deliverer and helped her, helped them. It happened again and again and again. So that certainly is included in this history, but it also may uh, extend beyond that. It also sounds like a description of the current state of the northern tribes of Israel. They had departed from God and were facing the consequences. In fact, I think it's best to see this as kind of a prophetic description of things that have happened in the past, things that were happening right now, and things that will happen in the future. Because this is a pattern that repeats itself in sacred history again and again and again. What is the solution? Well, we're told there in verse 4, when in their trouble they turned to the Lord God of Israel and sought him, he was found by them. In effect, the prophet says, let that be your story. But you be strong and do not let your hands be weak. For your work shall be rewarded. It's a message of encouragement, encouraging words from God to Asa, to all the people, and to you this morning. This is grace. And the knowledge of grace always serves to galvanize people with new energy, with new motivation, with new efforts to serve the Lord. And that's what we have here in the following verses. Asa And uh, Judah was moved to action, removing um, idolatry, all these foreign gods. 
restoring the true worship of God. And that leads us to consider uh, what I've called covenant renewal. In verse 12, it says, Then they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul. This language of entering into a covenant describes a kind of formal declaration and a, and a demonstration, actually, of uh, repentance and return to God. It wasn't a matter of forging some new relationship with God on new terms. They didn't make a covenant in that sense. But rather, it involved going back to the terms that God had clearly established, that he had spelled out, that he had spelled out in his word. We have another example of covenant renewal that would actually take place later in the history of Judah, after the same kind of pattern. There under King Josiah. And it said in Second Kings 23, Then the king, here referring to Josiah, stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. And all the people took a stand for the covenant. So it's not a matter of forging a new covenant with new terms. It's a matter of returning obediently in faith to the covenant that God had established with his people. And that's what repentance always is. Actually, we hear that uh, in Jesus' words to the church in Ephesus, that church that had left its, its first love. And the Lord Jesus says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember. Repent and do the first works. A reformation, personally, in our families, in churches, in history, is always a return. The Protestant Reformation was a return to the Bible. It was a return to the gospel. It wasn't forging something new. It was ad fontes, to the sources, going back to what is written in Scripture, first of all. We don't need something new, brothers and sisters. Spiritual refreshment and renewal doesn't mean some new discovery, some new path, some new technique, some new method. It always involves going back to the gospel. As you have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him, rooted and built up in your faith. Living by the word, that meant forsaking idolatry, that meant confessing God alone, it meant worshiping him according to his words. It meant obeying God's commandments. We already heard that in the previous chapter when Asa commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandment. That's covenant renewal. And actually it gives us uh, an outline of true spiritual re uh, reformation or revival whenever it occurs. It has these common characteristics. You can see them in our text. First of all, it's word-based. Here it was in response to the word of the Lord. In this case, the word of Asa. The prophecy, the preaching of this servant filled with the spirit whom God sent to them. And it was not only driven by God's word, it was according to his God, God's word. It was a return to what is written. And it was God-centered. It was God-centered in their worship. It was God-centered in heart with all their heart, with all their soul. It wasn't a matter of simply uh, restoring some form formal correctness to worship. But this God-centeredness had an inward correspondence 
and their own devotion. God-centered, you might also say, in their witness. We're told that great numbers came from Ephraim and Manasseh and Simeon. Ephraim really is shorthand for the northern tribes. Those ten tribes. Many people came from these northern tribes where Jeroboam had set up his idolatrous calves. Many of them came to Judah. Why? Because they heard that God was with him. If anything's going to draw people to the Lord, it has a lot to do with what they find when they come into this assembly. You know, we can think of evangelism, our witness. It's all geared to getting people to come to church. Well, yes, that is a goal. But what about the people that do come to church? I think we have to see a great inconsistency with any talk or interest in evangelism and indifference to those visitors that God may bring among us so that we don't know who they are, we don't make any effort to talk to them, to get to know them, to hear their story, to encourage them. If this church is going to thrive in its evangelistic testimony, it means a culture of evangelism also where we delight to see newcomers and we're interested to know what brought them here. And we're interested in involving them in the life and fellowship of the church. And that's an every member kind of thing. That's not the evangelism committee's work. That's not the work of certain specialists. That's our calling as God's people. It was unifying this work of grace that took place. I already mentioned that in verse 10. It says they, they gathered together in Jerusalem in the third month of the year. The third month, actually, that was the month in which the Feast of Weeks was celebrated. Pentecost. It's like here's a preview of Pentecost. The Word of God is proclaimed. There is repentance. There are great numbers gathered together. There is a reunion of people. And there is great joy. That was another characteristic of this revival. They took an oath before the Lord with a loud voice, with shouting and trumpets and ram's horns, and all Judah rejoiced at the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart and sought him with all their soul. And he was found by them, and the Lord gave them rest all around. Yes, here is a pattern for spiritual renewal today. It's a passage that that teaches us what God is able to do among peoples, among families among churches and individual lives. It involves an awakening to God. That always means an awakening to sin, leading to repentance. It involves zeal for the worship of God. It creates unity in the faith, and it creates a consecration of heart and life to God's will. And God is able to send times of refreshing to the church, to us individually. And in fact, whenever we see a concern, a serious concern for these priorities that I just listed, that in itself is the evidence of God's grace at work among us. And we ought to cherish that and be thankful for it and pray for more of it. Continue to pray that God would so reform and so revive his people. How much more today? not under the leadership of Asa, but with Christ on his throne, to whom was given all power in heaven and on earth. How much more then may we expect and pray for these manifestations of his grace, reviving and encouraging us in his way.
And then finally, we see how that leads to uh, costly and courageous obedience. And we can see two ways in which that became evident there among God's people. First in terms of possessions, and then in terms of relationships. They gave up material wealth for God's service. We're told of the great plunder that they had uh, obtained from uh, the Ethiopians. Gold and silver, sheep and camels. And then we're told in verse 11, and they offered to the Lord at that time 700 bulls and 7,000 sheep from the spoil they had brought. God obtained uh, that spoil for them by his power and grace, and they uh, honor God with it. In verse 18, we also read how uh, Asa brought into the house of God the things that his father had dedicated and that he himself had dedicated, silver and gold and utensils. You know, that can be a test of true spirituality. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? Oh, they wanted to present a picture of their spirituality, pretending that along with others they had given up their possessions for the sake of God's kingdom. But they were more concerned with appearance before men than the reality of consecrated lives because they lied. The problem wasn't that they kept back part of it. The problem was that they pretended that they gave everything while they kept back part of it for themselves and then lied about it and showed their covetous hearts. What should we think of hands that are quickly raised in worship and praise and those very same hands that are so, so slow to reach into their pockets for their wallet? or to reach into their purse to demonstrate their thankfulness and commitment to God's kingdom by giving some of their money, and if they're able, by giving a considerable part of their money. Such practical service can spell the difference between mere emotion and actual commitment to God's kingdom because true consecration to God affects our giving for the sake of Christ, for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, for our sakes became poor, that we through his poverty might be made rich. We have this unspeakable gift of salvation. And when our hearts are gripped by that, that loosens our grip on our stuff. That for Jesus' sake, then, we testify to our thankfulness also in giving. I'm not preaching to a congregation that uh, is stingy. I'm not preaching to people uh, uh, who give little although there might be some among you. But I don't want to pretend or speak as if I am I have a bone to pick with this congregation on such a topic at all. No, it's a matter of uh, just being continually aroused and stirred up to honor God with our substance as took place here. But secondly, we see how consecration to God comes before earthly relationships. And this is probably harder yet. First Kings also records uh, Asa's reign and the reforms uh, that he uh, initiated and uh, also his removal of idolatry. In fact, uh, it says in verse 12 of chapter 15 that he banished all the perverted persons from the land. Now, Chronicles uh, spoke about the abominable idols. In fact, we're going to see one example of this, an obscene ish, uh, image of, of Asherah 
that the queen mother had set up. You know, these were fertility gods and goddesses. And the worship of them often involved sexual perversions of various kinds. And their images actually depicted often a kind of exaggerated, grotesque sexuality that was part of this paganism. Sometimes that paganism, even as it was initiated and brought into Israel, involved some of the practices of the heathens. Temple prostitution, homosexual perversions. In fact, the word perverted persons, you can, you can look it up. It really refers to male prostitutes or male homosexuals. Asa banished them from the land. You know, that would be judged as an act of hatred in our day, wouldn't it? In fact, you'll be judged as a hater if you even dare to speak about God's will for human sexuality as revealed in this scripture. You'll be condemned by it. You'll be judged by it. Sometimes that's the cost of confessing Jesus Christ. And I think more and more in the day in which we live, yes, that is the cost of confessing Jesus Christ. <laughs> Adhering to his word at the very point where it clashes with culture. You know, we can preach against the Roman Catholic Church forever. And the Reformers did a whole lot more of that than we do. And we need not imitate them on that. But they were addressing the issues of their day. They were addressing the way the gospel had been perverted and corrupted by false teaching. And we live in a time when the gospel is being perverted and corrupted by people who would call themselves Christians and practice perversions according to Scripture. And we need the courage and the commitment to Christ at the appropriate time and way, with love, to speak the truth. And if I sounds like I hammer away on this subject, and I thought to myself, you know, I, I have been addressing this more often in the last years. I don't want to go overboard with it, but I don't want to be neglectful. And I don't want to be afraid to address this because it is one of the big issues of our, of our day. And it's a point in which the Christian testimony has to be clear, uncompromised, that we follow God's word. And we're willing, willing to pay the cost, even if that means relationships that are broken and fractured because of it. In verse uh, 13, we read, Whoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel was to be put to death, whether small or great, whether man or woman. Now, it's a verse that, again, shows the, uh, the nature of this consecration to the worship of God. It ought not to be understood as if somehow they were uh, able to go on an inquisition and verify that everybody uh, was acting in sincere faith. No, rather it addresses those that refuse to conform to this reformation and who refuse to give up their idolatry and persisted in it. Well, notice uh, his action with the queen mother who had set up this idolatrous image. She was removed. She wasn't executed. Maybe that indicated that she accepted uh, the new rule and she conformed to it whether she was personally converted or not. But those that would not conform and would persist in their uh, idolatry publicly in a way that was noted, they would face the penalty that the law of God required. And again, it's a matter of going back to the word of God. You can read it in Deuteronomy chapter uh, chapter 13, where it says, If your brother, the son of your mother, your son or your daughter, the wife of your bosom, or your friend, who is as your own soul, secretly entices you, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers. 
of the gods of the people which are all, all around you, near to you, or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other to the end of the earth. You shall not consent to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him or conceal him. But you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. This was not a private execution. It was rather a public demonstration that idolatry cannot be tolerated and promoted among the people of God. You know what today's counterpart to this is, don't you, brothers and sisters? It's not execution, it's excommunication, right? It doesn't affect people's bodies, it doesn't affect their, uh, their, their money, it affects their status in the church of Jesus Christ. People cannot, they may not profess to serve the Lord and live contrary to the clear teaching of his word on such matters. It's not an act of hate to be faithful to scripture in these instances. It's an act of love. Love for God. A love that puts him above personal feelings and concerns. A love for others so that sin is not glossed over and it doesn't spread like leaven. A love for the one who is involved in such things so that they might see the consequences of rebelling against God and come to repentance. They took courage, according to God's word. Remember what the Lord Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, verse 26 and 7. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus is describing the cost of following him. And it doesn't mean that we hate others. It means that in comparison to others and pleasing them and going their way, when the will of the Lord is other, that we follow Christ. That's what Asa did. That's what happened there. What kind of power leads to that kind of devotion? Well, it's the power of love, actually. The power of love that's fueled by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The power to put Christ first and to love others, to love them faithfully. God's grace inspires renewed consecration. May his grace continually move us and inspire us to that. Amen.